Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to Triple R on this fine Melbourne morning, uh, regardless of where you are in the world. We realize that some people are listening from a long, long way away. In the studio with me this morning is Dr. Ray. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I'm uh, I'm just getting used to the studio. I was like, wow, there's speakers and headphones and microphones. It's <laughs> It's been a while since we've been in, and I'm really excited. And giant pieces of perspex that connect you and me in a weird way. Uh <laughs> It's like the old uh, cone of silence from uh, Get Smart. <laughs> doesn't really work. Anyway, Dr. Linden's in the studio as well. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. I've got to see this beautiful Melbourne day since its very beginning, thanks to my toddler. The sunrise is beautiful <laughs> this morning. It's lovely, calm air around, and now it's heating up. If you are here, it's going to be a nice Sunday. Yeah, see, since I stopped using an alarm clock two years ago, thanks, pandemic, uh, I wake up with the birds now, which oh, is usually nice. at about... About 5 a.m., so not as nice as you might imagine. And we've got Stacey on the line over Zoom. Morning, Stacey. Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we're going to start off with some news for you, folks, and then we have our uh, guest today is uh, beaming in from San Francisco. It's going to be a really interesting discussion. And then I think Dr. Linden's going to tell us some really cool stuff later in the show. But starting with some news, Stacey, you're up first. What do you got for us? Sure. Well, I came across some fairly impressive results from experimental cancer therapies uh, this week, published in Nature. So um, this was a therapy involving providing patients with infusions of their own genetically engineered immune cells. So it was a phase one trial. So just uh, to recap, phase one trials uh, where you assess uh, safety of new therapies in first time uh, among a small group of people. And they primarily want to look at how well new therapies are tolerated in humans and to identify any side effects. And then they can also follow up those patients for a long period of time to look at long-standing effects. So this particular trial was conducted on two patients and they had chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So this is a cancer of the white blood cells. Um, and specifically, this cancer affects the B cells. So um, recall B cells are the ones that make the antibodies to help fight infection. But the therapy involved um, for this particular uh, cancer therapy was actually the T cells that are being genetically engineered to help. Now, we've discussed T cells on this program previously. We're very lucky to have our resident expert, uh, Dr. Laura, who's our T cell aficionado. Mm. Um, but yeah, we've, we've heard a lot about T cells. We love T cells. But T cells are those immune cells that are responsible for fighting foreign cells that enter the body, such as viruses and bacteria. And they do that directly killing those foreign cells or sending off a range of signals to other immune cells um, or other immune processes that help the body to the to fight the infection. But this therapy, um, which is termed CAR-T, so chimeric antigen receptor T-cell therapy, involves removing those T-cells from a patient, then genetically engineering them. Um, so we alter the T-cells so they produce a particular protein, which is these chimeric antigen receptors, CARs, and it's these proteins that are designed to recognise the cancer cells, and then they grow them up in the lab 
and then they infuse them back into the patient. And so once the engineered T cells are infused back into the patient, they're essentially primed to seek out and destroy cancer cells. So it's pretty cool um, experimental therapy, and it was tested on these two patients back in 2010, so more than 12, you know, 12 years ago, um, and the scientists were waiting to see how long these patients remained cancer-free. And so this study, which was pu- published in Nature from researchers in University of Pennsylvania, and they confirmed that these two p- patients have essentially um, they've been cured of their cancer. Mm. And scientists don't usually use that term cure very lightly, but they're using it here. These patients have been remission for around 12 years. And so what's so compelling about this study, other than the success for the uh, individuals concerned, but that the scientists have been able to show this long-term safety and persistence of genetically engineered T cells in the body. Um, I did wonder whether or not the patients had to have continual T-cell infusions, but they didn't. So you get it once and then it's remained detectable for more than 10 years after infusion. And then the T-cells just continue to do their job, right? They've been genetically modified, so they just keep destroying cancer cells and then they proliferate and reproduce new T-cells with these particular CAR proteins. So um, it's a pretty cool study. Treatment success is limited at this stage to leukaemias of blood cancers. Um, And uh, so they they call it living living drugs, essentially, and it's being used around the world to treat a range of blood cancers. Uh, It remains to be seen whether or not you can use this CAR-T therapy to treat solid tumours like brain lung cancer. But it certainly um, offers some hope for cancer therapies, in particular these immunotherapies um, for for the future. Yeah, look, it's fantastic stuff. And I think, um, you know, I remember 10 years ago or so when this first came out and talking about how we were going to start using our own immune system as the as the best tool we had to fight cancer and, and seeing that play out now and seeing these therapies become available is just phenomenal stuff. Thanks so much, Stacey. Great story. Great to hear that uh, those patients are still doing well. And um, and as you say, rightly, uh, the word cure is rarely used um, in these instances. So that's that's great stuff. Dr. Ray, over to you. Dr. Shane, well, I'm, star, I'm still still rocking. That's just extraordinary. Sorry, Stacy's story, just wow. Um, right, what was I talking about? I was talking about um, teeth, but not the way you think. Uh, so it, we're going to talk about artificial tooth enamel. And the reason for that is, uh, so the enamel on our teeth is actually the, 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 the strongest material our body makes. Uh, it's strong, it's tough, and it's durable. In material science, those have three different meanings, but that's like the trifecta of an awesome engineered material. Uh, and what we've seen over the last 15 years is a lot of researchers trying to be take inspiration from biology in materials design. And we've already seen successes. We've seen new surgical glues that have come from looking at the adhesive behaviors of some mollusks and abalone in trying to design new molecules for for adhesives. And we're seeing that again and again. And what we've got is a study from researchers at the University of Michigan, mostly, who um, have basically made an artificial tooth enamel. Um, and, and, and the reason why this one's difficult is we know it's in tooth enamel. We know it's got a lot of hydroxyapatite, which is the same material that makes up our bones. And it's got a lot of magnesium and, and, and calcium in it and different biological polymers. But what makes enamel special is how it's assembled actually on the nanoscale. And so the components that make our tooth enamel so strong are because it has amazing order on a scale about a thousand times smaller than the size of our cell. 
And it has these little hydroxyapatite fibers that sit together and they have something called an amorphous integrated phase of biological molecules that kind of holds it all together. And, and it's that structure on this organized small scale. And if you look at it, it's incredibly organized and very, very ordered of these rods of bone-like material. And, and it's that order that really gives it its strength and durability and toughness. And so for us to reproduce something on that scale that ordered is quite difficult because mm. nature has this amazing ability to structure matter on this small scale that we often don't. And when we do, it's also really expensive when we end up doing that. So what these researchers did is they made a, um, a synthetic tooth enamel that also used hydroxyapatite fibers because we've gotten good at growing small little shards of bone on the nanometer scale. But through some very clever engineering and understanding and being inspired by real tooth enamel, they were able to actually replicate structures of that kind on that scale but instead of making just the tooth enamel which is the covering on our teeth they can make machinable blocks of it mm, and, cool. and, and and so they can actually make it at scale as well i mean just to show off in the paper they made it in the shape of a tooth um but what they've actually made is uh, they were very clever and uh, they, they they didn't use the same biological polymers they used synthetic ones and so they made a synthetic tooth enamel but they didn't quite get the tooth enamel properties it's twice as strong and four times as durable. So go them. Uh, and, 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 and by being able to make something that's actually not out of terribly expensive ingredients and you can make on scale, really starts to open up new engineered materials that we can use in, well, given its nature, hopefully eventually the body, I think that probably would need some clearances. But it's, it's just this other great example of being inspired by nature and, and we're getting to the point that we're paying attention to the complexity in these natural materials and then with some clever engineering, finding ways to reproduce it. This is not the way they grow teeth, by the way. It, it's a little different in how they make it. That's amazing. Do you think there would be a chance that – I mean, the, it sounds like if it's tougher and stronger and more durable than actual enamel, that using it to make teeth would not be the way. Like there'd, there'd be a risk there. If you put something stronger than your well, teeth – in amongst all your teeth. Well, the strength's only two times. It's the durability that's four times as it's wear. Okay. But, it, it, well, if uh, having met one of the people who invented the ceramic teeth that we actually now get machined in the office, like if you have to get a tooth mm. replaced, you know, they, they take a digital scan of it in 3D and then they machine the tooth in, in the office the time they, they thought I was crazy when I had that done to me. I'm like, can I watch the five axis mill? <laughs> um, and it, those materials are actually already harder than teeth now. Yeah. So um, it is interesting to think that they might be able to add this in that process as a coating over it because it might actually last a little longer than the ceramic mm -hmm. ones they use now. It's very cool stuff. Yeah. Dr. Linden, what have you got for us? Uh, <laughs> I have got something just as important as curing cancer, just as important as replacing teeth. I have got some pretty exciting numbers that happened this week in the world of weather. <laughs> Okay. Just hold your horses. This is some big, big science stuff. All right. So Wednesday, we know it was the second of the second, twenty twenty-two. Yeah, very exciting. Yeah. And at two twenty-two on the North Island of New Zealand, in a little town called Turangi, it was twenty-two point two degrees. <laughs> wow. Wow. How long did it take you to find that? Oh, my goodness. No, no. <laughs> Somebody else had done this nerd work for me because the story gets better. Uh, in Australia, we managed to get 22.2 at 2.22 on the 2nd of the 2nd, 2022. In South Australia, in Minipa, which I think is north of Adelaide, 
Oh, no, maybe it's on the peninsula, the Air Peninsula. But then, oh, the, you know, we're GMT plus 10. There's a lot of the second of the second 2022 <laughs> oh, to go. <laughs> in the afternoon, 2.22 in Spain, 22.2 degrees. In it's this conspiracy, town. I think. Oh, no, wait. But so, here's the conspiracy part. <laughs> if you dug a hole from... Turangi in the North Island, where it was 22.2 at 2.22 in the afternoon, through the centre of the earth, you'd end up 300 k's away from where at 2.22, on the second of the second 22, it was 22.2 degrees. (laughs) Aren't you glad you've got me in the studio to tell you this excellent (laughs) science? We haven't seen you in months. You can't know. Um, Well, uh, this is pretty cool, this time of year, though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's... um, you know, we're in this weird uh, – I saw this great tweet the other day. Someone put up and said that, uh, um, you know, we always talk about the hottest year. Mm-hmm. And, and they said, well, actually, this is the coolest year we'll ever have in yeah. the future. I thought that was a really interesting way of, yep. of looking at it because oh. we always talk, oh, it's the hottest year, it's the hottest year, it's yeah. the hottest year. And, and they, they turned this around and um, – and said, no, this is the, the, the coolest year we will yeah, ever have in exactly. the exactly. No, and look, yeah. I do have some actual stats as well. You know, we've just uh, – Victoria, probably wouldn't surprise anybody who's listening from Victoria, our nights were the warmest nights yeah. on record for January. We smashed it out of the park in terms of humidity as well. No surprises Disgusting. there. It was our most humid <laughs> January on record. The humidity um, records are shorter than our temperature observations. Right. We don't have as reliable humidity records. They go back to about the 1970s. So and it's, it was still pretty humid. And we also smashed – it out of the park in Melbourne for days above 30. Mm. 17 days in January were above 30 degrees, which is a record by quite a few days. And it was yeah, our warmest nights on record, 3.65 degrees warmer. Three and a yeah. half, more than yeah. three and a half degrees warmer than the lot. 1961 to 1990 average, which is crazy. The yeah. Bureau still, um, I think they might still be finalising the numbers for 2021. Mm. It was our coolest year since 2012. And right. as, as the tweets and the research has said, you know, yeah, it's likely to be the last one. Yeah. The, the coolest yeah, yeah, yeah. one we're going to get for a while, if ever again. So um, I'd, I'd love to see the heat island map effects for the city, given we, it was so warm in January, because it never felt like it really cooled down. In yeah, yeah. And, it, yeah. and it was the nights. I was reading yeah. the stats from the Bureau yesterday, and it said, oh, we experienced a moderate heat wave from the 20th to the 28th of January. You know, because <laughs> by the definition, it was moderate, because the days never really got above... 40, yeah. but it was just long. And yeah. that is actually quite a, um, a pattern of La Nina. Yeah. We get longer yeah. events, but they're not as hot. So it's rough stuff. Well, Hooray. you know, it feels like we're living in Brisbane down here in Melbourne at the moment. But, uh, hang on to those twos. Enjoy those statistics there. instead. <laughs> Folks, we're going to take a break for some music. And when we come back, we'll be speaking to Dr. Susanna Harris from San Francisco. Triple R. On the line with me now, we have Dr. Susanna Harris from San Francisco. She's the Manager of Engagement and Communications at Zotonomy. Zotogeny, have I got that right, Susanna? I'm sure I mispronounce it. Whenever I see an X, I freak out. <laughs> you know, actually, you uh, you were right. You got it's Zontogeny, so you kind of pulled it together. Uh, so, yeah, biotech accelerator called Zontogeny, but spelled with next. Excellent. Now, before we get into a lot of different things, I, you know, because we're going to have a bit of a longer discussion this morning about a range of the things that you do, uh, give us a bit of a background on your sort of field, where you came through in terms of your undergrad and, and you, you did a PhD, but you're no longer in mm-hmm. academia. So just give us the backstory. 
Totally. So uh, let's see, I did my undergrad in microbiology also, but at the University of Iowa, I grew up in Iowa and always really enjoyed science, thought it was super cool, didn't really know what I wanted to do with it. Was I going to, you know, I didn't want to do the doctor thing, maybe veterinarian or marine sciences or something. And um, took a, a high school class where we learned about microbes and bacteria and viruses for a day or two. And I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Found out that I could do my undergrad major in microbiology and said, okay, I know I want to go to college. Let's go do that. While I was in college, I found out that in fact, you can just keep, you can just keep going to school. You can actually (laughs) keep going. And, um, you know, a lot of people hear that and are like, are you sure that's what you would choose to do? But, um, I loved, I loved school. I loved learning. I loved being around people who wanted to be learning, wanted to be growing. And it turns out if you do a, a PhD in microbiology or a lot of other biological sciences in the U.S., you get paid to go. So I was like, perfect. Just going to go do my PhD in microbiology and immunology at UNC Chapel Hill. And I finished that up in March of 2020, which is an interesting time to make a big career shift. Yeah, I bet. Did you find um, when you were coming through, I remember when I did my bachelor's degree in science, I, you know, I went to university thinking I'm going to be a science guy and and did a bachelor's degree. And then someone sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, no, you really need to do honors now. You need another year. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So then I did that. And then, you know, towards the end of that, I said, yeah, you really need to do a PhD now. Did, did you find there was a sort of that bracket creep that you weren't quite prepared for after you, you when you first entered? Yeah, I think that's a, I like the, uh, the kind of the, the creep situation of it's just, it's the logical next step. It's the logical next step. And you should do this. You should do this. And suddenly, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily that it's not the right place to be, but you kind of look back and say like, how did I, how did I get here? Was I the one who chose this or did the world choose this? And I kept going on the path. I'm, it's a little bit of both, I think. Now, you had an interesting scenario when you were entering your PhD program because mm-hmm. what, what a lot of people are not aware of, and it's different here in Australia than it is in the US somewhat, but you don't just sort of walk in and say, I want to, I want to do this. It can be quite a, a difficult scenario to actually be accepted in. Tell us about what happened there. So, uh, yeah, while I was an undergrad, one of the best experiences that I had at my university was that I was able to do undergraduate research. So I worked alongside of a graduate student to help with her project, looking at how different soil microbes would interact with each other, how they communicated, and got to go a little bit past just doing the classes. I enjoyed the classes. I enjoyed learning and lab classes, but this was something very different. It was coming up with your own ideas. And unlike in a laboratory class where they give you a hypothesis or they'd say, okay, we're going to test this idea. They already knew the answer. There was an answer Mm. built into classes. You should find the right answer. If you've ever taken a a chemistry class and you don't find the right answer, if that's a lab, you probably lost points. Mm. Um, But in scientific research, you don't you don't know if it is the right answer. You don't even know if you have a, like, do you have an answer of any type? Uh, and and so doing this undergrad research was really how I realized I enjoyed the research aspect. I enjoyed asking these questions, digging through without a class to find all these, these answers. And that's sort of what you do. A big part of a PhD in the U.S., um, you have classes, but mostly research, primary research focused doing all of this work uh, that I, I got to do in undergrad was what really prepared me and, and allowed me to get into these different programs. And because people said, and, and it's true outside now as well, experience 
just is so important because not only can you do the thing, but you know, if you like to do the thing, you know, if you want to keep doing that. So I'd already done some of the research, which is really a big part of the PhD. Mm. It's really interesting. One of the comments I often make is there is a difference between enjoying science and enjoying being a scientist. And Mm -hmm. this is something that often gets confused. I I know uh, for, for many university experiences, when students come through, there is an incredible pressure to continue. In fact, you know, this is almost a survival mode of many institutions that if we make students feel they're a failure, if they don't continue, um, more and more of them will, will, will stick with it. You, you ended your, your PhD and then you, you didn't continue in academia. I mean, wh- what was sort of your experience there? Because often when, when we talk about, when you hear people talk about this, it's seen as, a, oh, you didn't cut it or, you, or whatever, you know, all the negatives around mm-hmm. it. But, but we, never, we never think of it that way with other areas of, of you know, sort of enterprise, you know, people change their jobs, they do different things. But in academia, there seems to be this incredible sort of almost oppressive push for you to continue or fail. What what were your mm-hmm. sort of experiences there? It's a great, such a great question. And, and something that I'm, you know, two years out still sort of constantly grappling with. I, I had a conversation with a friend yesterday who was thinking about, was he going to be continuing his PhD? And he had this fear of, am I going to carry this failure for the rest of my life? And I said, you know, I am I am a science communicator. I work in biotech. I have my PhD and I work in actually technically venture capital. And I was like, and to 95% of the people that I have worked around in my life, I have failed. Mm-hmm. As in whatever path they are aiming for, I have gotten abysmally far off of their path. So for all of grad school, you're surrounded by and, and trained by and you look up to people who their goal is to be a professor, where the the goal of what you're doing is to be a professor or to run a research lab. And so it's not even that they're necessarily looking down on you. And, and sometimes it's not in a, a necessarily a negative way, but to do anything other than that is a failure in their book. It is to their core in some ways if they had done that, if they had not become a professor, it would be a failure. So seeing someone else not become a professor is a failure. And, and likewise, on the side of the, the venture capital side, or even the, some of the science communication side, um, I'm not an investor. I'm not the person in venture capital who is making the decision of who get, who gets our checks. Um, I'm not the startup founder. So I, I kind of, in in grad school, got used to this idea that the things that everyone else used to define their own success wouldn't necessarily fit how I defined my success, wouldn't fit what I was looking for. And to just kind of get used to the fact that I would have people saying, oh, I'm, I'm really happy that you're not upset about where you ended up. And, and to just kind of learn to accept, you know, they, they, mean, they mean the best. They are trying to be kind and they're trying to, you know, make me feel good about my failure. But but to know deep inside, like this is this is what success looks like, like to me, and it's okay to be really happy about it. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting scenario. I know a lot of people who've left academia, and I have to say they're usually the most chilled out of all the people I know compared to my academic friends, two of which are in the room right now, and they're you know they're always looking a bit stressed. Um, they're doing well though; they're doing well. But we um we we have a scenario I think where often there isn't the appropriate levels of support at many institutions for students and so forth. Now you started up something called PhD Balance. Tell us tell us what is PhD Balance? Is it possible to be balanced when you're doing a PhD? <laughs> 
Oh, wow. There's, there's two big questions. Um, so yeah, as far as, uh, what is PhD balance? So PhD balance is, it's sort of an, it's an online based support platform. I don't want to say support group, but our, our mission is to create the spaces for graduate students to learn from shared experiences. Um, this all came out of when I was in, uh, in my fourth year of my PhD, there was a paper that came out uh, call in, in a journal called Nature Biotech, and it showed that somewhere around 30 to 40% of graduate students were dealing with signs and symptoms of severe and chronic depression and anxiety at any given time. Yeah. And this number was just shocking to me. Um, it was a little bit kind of hopeful in some ways because I dealt with really really rough mental illness, definitely a lot of depression, um, kind of mix of a handful of other things too. And for me, I read this and I was like, oh, okay, well, I can't, there's no way I could possibly be the only person in this room. And I looked around the room and I thought, well, no, 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 that statistic doesn't, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, like that's, this room is different. This room of 20 people, I am the only person who's struggling. And so it, it was, came out of this idea that maybe, we can know the stats on something. We can know that mental health is a really big issue in academia, that a lot of people are struggling. But unless we can actually accept the fact that we don't, we don't know what mental illness looks like, that we don't know the experiences that other people are having, we don't realize that we aren't alone by seeing other people, it's going to be really hard to to accept that within ourselves and to make some of these changes. So PhD Balance um, started as PH Depression, I was a PhD student with depression and uh, just was a, an Instagram page for people to share a photo of what they would look like going to a conference or hanging out with friends. And then their story of dealing with mental health issues. Uh, it, we ended up switching to PhD balance because so many people really quickly came and said, I want to share my story. I want to talk though about anxiety, or I want to talk about an abusive mentor, or I want to talk about um, being an international student. And so balance kind of, it, it was both a way to be more inclusive of all these different stories, not decide who is allowed to, to share. Um, but also to your question of, can you be balanced? Um, eh. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think there's uh, one of the, the phrases that uh, I really like is like, in the end, it will be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. I'm a big believer in you find a point of balance eventually. And so the real skill set is, is learning to know when you're going to be off balance and learning to know when that's going to cause problems and, and getting back to that balance, that kind of set point as quickly as possible. Yeah. It's an interesting scenario. I know um, talking to colleagues here um, just during the break about an article I wrote some time ago, and this is one of the reasons I bumped into your your Twitter feed actually was, um, and, and I look back at my 70 to 80 academic papers, I look at everything else I've written in my life, and the one article that by a very, very large margin has been viewed the most is one entitled, Why You Should Quit Your PhD. And of <laughs> course, it is all about all the reasons why you shouldn't, um, but there are two very important reasons at the end that I think are legitimate reasons, one being if your mental health gets to a point of, you know, real severe difficulty and 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 is becoming dangerous you know i think that's um you know that's a good reason and second you may actually just decide that this is not the career you want which is actually okay mm -hmm. too 
but you should never quit because you have a crappy supervisor or a crappy project or you know all these other things that are kind of you know ones that are manufactured by the system as opposed to really about mm. about you and it, it actually I, I i was hoping when i wrote this you know 70 to 100 people would read it but disturbingly um you know orders and orders of magnitude above that have have viewed this article and and i've received a lot of nice messages saying i'm i'm not quitting now thank you for, for the article because yeah. of course it's about not quitting but there does seem to be i've noticed in the u.s in particular um there seems to be more of a push for student organizations to deal with this than there are actually for institutions and there seems to be a real growing um you know set of groups that are, that are doing this sort of work to support students as as they get into difficulty yeah i i think that that's i think it's true um i think and i mean we're seeing a lot of students at universities unionizing as well. So saying, you know, you, you can't treat us as a bunch of individuals with no power, even though we are. Graduate students have essentially no power in the U.S. We're somewhere between um, being an employee and being a student, depending on what is the most convenient for the university at the time. So for instance, in the summer, well, you're an employee, you don't get a summer break, you're working for us, but you're a student. And so you don't have health care during the summer. Um, and it's, and so there's a lot of that in different spaces. And so in terms of even the mental health stuff of like, you're, you're a student. And so we're going to offer you support around finals times, but you're an employee. And so you don't actually get to go access those. And also it doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that I don't, there's a huge variation uh, around the world. And that's been one of the most interesting things about, um, about running PhD balance is that right now there were a group of about, I think there's 17 volunteers currently. There's usually between 12 and 20 um, all over the place. And and for a while, one of uh, our our head editor of these stories was in Melbourne, Australia. So uh, time zones were fun, but the, the challenges we're very similar. People who are pursuing a PhD are often very inquisitive, driven, hardworking, um, oftentimes like hypercritical, not just of their work, but of themselves, but that the situations they were in um, and, and the, what they, how, how they were dealing with things really was affected by what their local environment was. Now, Susanna, you've you've moved into a different space now, and as you mentioned before, a lot around science communication. Firstly, what are your reflections on the science communication as as we're seeing it with regards to the pandemic? I mean, we're, we're seeing some shockers here. Um, how are you handling that? Are you uh, doing your best to sort of correct it? What what's sort of going on at your end? Uh, yeah, it's. Sometimes it's sometimes it seems worse than than I expected. I was lucky that I was doing science communication before the pandemic, um, as in like I had been trained at a local planetarium and science center, and it was in um, I was in North Carolina at the time. But a lot of the work that I did was in rural North Carolina, which is um, generally not. Uh, the cool thing was that sometimes we were the only scientists that this you know a, a middle school class had ever met. None mm-hmm. of these people had ever met someone who was a scientist. Yeah. So, but that gives you a bit of a foundation of um, kind of general science literacy in some of these communities. Uh, and so I had already had a lot of these, these conversations that I think a lot of scientists got to have for the first time in the pandemic with people where you're just like, 
how did you come up with that idea? What, how do I even start this conversation? Or realizing you know, there's nothing I can say in this conversation that is going to have a positive outcome. So I think that there's, for me, it's been an interesting kind of learning experience of watching things happen at the macro level, at the the national and international levels, the political side, but also at the how have how have dynamics changed within families or within individuals? And I think that there are things that you can do on the large scale with your with your voice, with your online platforms, um, whatever you can. But I, I'm more and more. I just think it's so important to make impacts where you can with the people who trust you around you, um, with with your your friends or your family members in a way that is, is going to have forward progress. Um, it's, it's so, tr- it's so tricky. It's yeah. Mm. I don't know. I hope, I hope I've done more, more good than bad, but I don't know. Yeah. I think I remember at the start of the pandemic and, you know, doing the show and, and having a bit of a platform, you know, had this got to save everyone kind of attitude. And then, and then I, I know as, and I'm not sure if this is me getting tired or, or just the, the realization that actually there is a, a group with whom you, you, the diminishing returns really hit you pretty fast. And mm-hmm. I know in that case, I think, you know, in Australia here, we're doing very well. Our vaccination rates are well over 90% for the majority of our population, which some of us, you know, were, were hoping for 75, you know, a year and a half ago, we thought it would be amazing. But, but we've sort of got there. There's still some pushback, but you know, doing quite well. But I think there, there's still that point of diminishing returns where you say, well, what about that last little percentage? And some of them, of course, are, are not vaccinated because they can't they can't take the vaccines. But there is a there is a small group for whom it's just like, well, I think I'm going to put my efforts elsewhere now because that seems like a better, a better use of my time where I can have, as you say, a bigger impact. So in, mm-hmm. in, now in terms of your work with the company, because you know, you're out there, you're in the corporate world now. I mean, what does that look <laughs> like for a, a person who's got a PhD? So you've got the science background, you've got the science communication background, and I know that has a different sort of status to it. You know, if, if you walk in and say, I have a PhD in physics, they look at you one way. If you walk in and say, I'm a science communicator, they look at you another way. Um, mm-hmm. You don't have the physics, you have the biology. But you know what? What does that look like for you working for a, you know, essentially a, a, a large investor in technologies? Yeah, I, I think it goes back to this idea of what is what is a science communicator? What does it mean to be good at it? Uh, and and I usually say like you know you know what a, sci- a good science communicator is when you find a bad one. Um, you know when you watch the news and you get a, a, a scientist on there who is not comfortable communicating, and you they are clearly brilliant with their work um but they're they're not you're not interested they they might be fascinating great person but you're going to change the channel you're just not interested you don't know what they're saying and then on the flip side there's people who are fantastic communicators but the moment they start talking about science it becomes very apparent they don't know what they're talking about and so being a, a science communicator means that you are dedicated to being good at both understanding the science and understanding the communication and so for my work um one example, and this was sort of my my trial by fire moment, because I also, when I started this job, had concerns. Uh, am I the right per? I don't have a background in VC. Um, I'm not a business person, a corporate person. Could this be done by somebody else? 
we had to write a bunch of press releases announcing the companies that we were going to be supporting. We, uh, the way we support these little tiny startups is usually like one to three founders. They have some cool molecule that maybe it could cure disease in the future, um, but they're trying to build their company. And so we give them money and then we act to help them uh, as their management team and their consulting team. And I do kind of the marketing and the PR side of that. So we were announcing that we had invested in a bunch of new companies. And my boss came to me and said, you're a communications person, you write the press releases. And I've never written a press release. And I had never heard of these companies before. Most of them don't have a website. Um, They have very technical documents. And so I had a a month to, one, figure out what a press release looked like, what a good one looked like, what it would look like to get um, media coverage, which releases are going to be really effective and reading through and saying, like, what is a seed stage? I don't really know. Um, so doing that background research on communication, what does good communication look like in this space? And then also having meetings with the CEOs of each of these companies and saying, send me your literature, send, like truly send me the papers that your science is based off of. Send me the decks that you've put together of that are not labeled well and your data is all over the place, but I, I'm, a, I'm a scientist by training. I know how to read this because not only is it important for me to create something that is uh, that is engaging as a press release, you also have to be very careful about being accurate. So the same way with science communication that you don't, you, you want people to read it, but you don't need to do the sensationalization that makes it wrong. I had the fear and, and it's a real consideration that if I miscommunicate something in these press releases, it could be illegal in some cases. So if I say something is first in class and it's actually maybe best in class, uh, someone else has done it first. That's a, actually a really, really big issue. Um, and it was a, it was really difficult, but it was a nice confirmation to me where I was like, someone who was a great communicator could have done this. Someone who's a really good scientist could have done this, but it would have been really, really, really hard if I hadn't been able to do both of those things. Yeah. I think it's, it's really an interesting reflection there that, you know, you 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 do need both of the skills. I mean, this is one of the things I find very interesting. You know, I get I get a you can imagine a very large number of press releases sent to me at the show, and you know, uh, peeking behind the curtain, it's rare that I read beyond the first two lines. Um, you know, usually I hit the delete key after that, and some of them I do, and they're the ones you can tell where both the science is there of of note, um, but also the effort has been put into the the communication in a way that says we actually care about who's reading this and we know that they're time poor mm. and we know that you know it's going to be hard for them to take this on we're going to make it as easy as possible for them to take this on because that's our job as communicators to make their job easier as well not it's not just about us it's about them so um bravo for getting those out so, you know the, you, as you say trial by fire the first thing you have to do is write press releases must have been a, a bit of a shock but um but yeah it's good and it's a, it's a it's an incredible learning experience and i'm sure all of your various skills are coming together in this new job and sounds like um sounds like you've landed in a very nice place um Susanna, thanks so much for talking to us today good good luck with that ongoing work and all your um your other things and the phd balance thing uh, people can easily google that and find that there's some really interesting stuff there um Susanna also has a a really good video about mental health on her video uh, on her website which I, I watched over the last 24 hours which was impressive as well thanks so much for chatting to us and um we'll maybe talk again in the future sounds great thank you so much folks that was dr Susanna harris uh, from san francisco she's 
Triple R. Lyndon's going to tell us some cool stuff. Well, no pressure. Just Sorry. following an excellent interview with a fabulous science communicator for me to do some science communication. <laughs> no and um, I'm going to, I want to start with something that may get me booted from the studio and never back in again. But I wanted to try a bit of show and tell, a bit of guess what I've got in my hand. Okay. Uh, you know, okay. this is radio. I know. Right? Oh. I know, but. <laughs> But it was the best I could think of to try to introduce this story in a small way because it is a really big thing to kind of think about, particularly fast and particularly now. So it's about the size of a coffee pod thing, you know, oh, yeah. that you put in your Nespresso machine. It's spiky, but it's not kind of painful to touch. It's quite pleasant to touch. It's hard. Hmm. Walnut? Ooh, good guess. I was thinking those things that you rub your, you can put under your feet and kind of roll them along for sore feet or working oh. out, stretching out the tendons on your foot. It feels like a massage ball. It's actually a seed pod. I was going to ask oh. about that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what they're called. What are they called though? Are they actually called seed pods? Yeah. Is, it, is there a technical name? Um, I couldn't find a technical name. Huh. The technical name of the tree is a casuarina, she-oak. Oh, there you go. This is a she-oak seed pod. I picked it up yesterday down the Great Ocean Road. And while these kinds of species don't, necessarily need fire to regenerate in australia we have heaps and heaps of species that do need need fire to regenerate or smoke and i wanted to just talk a little bit about something that i've been curious about um dr ray you were saying off air that you went down to gippsland over the the summer break i went down to gippsland as well and there are a lot of people who've been up into the high country or maybe you went to uh, southwestern victoria maybe you went to the altways maybe you went to wilson's prom and all of these areas in different stages are recovering from fire, right? And what I wanted to know was how are they going? Are they, are they going okay? I don't know, Ray. Did you see when you went down to Gippsland, areas that were decimated? What was it, 24 million hectares of land that was destroyed by the Black Summer bushfires? What we, did you see in the we, bush? We didn't get out as much as we would like. We kind of drove down there. I got COVID symptoms and just isolated for the entire time. Oh, we so there. I'm rubbing this in. Sorry. Like, I saw uh, no bush, Lyndon. Thank you for bringing it no, up. No, <laughs> no. It was, it was a lovely drive there to, to stay in a remote Airbnb for six days. Easy way to isolate, though. Um, but no, I was actually wondering about that because... Because I remember the first time I was here 20 years ago when Hall's Gap burned down. And I was curious just how long it took to go back. Um, and, and, and I did wonder about that. Because even when you're driving out in the country, you know, sometimes you see trees that still have charred bark. And you're like, well, how long ago was that? Yeah, that's, these are exactly the questions that I'm asking. How long does it take to get back to what it looked like? Will it ever get back to what it looked like? What well, does it mean? I know up, um, driving up towards um, Lake Mountain, you mm-hmm. know, as you head up from Marysville there and, you know, where the fires went through very intensely, like they're just dead sticks. They're not, there's no indication that that's coming back. I mean, there's some, some, bushland there but yeah but like you look at that old growth stuff and it's like no this is the temperature there obviously exceeded the range where these things could survive yeah 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 and there's there's some species as well these are probably eucalypt trees that you're yeah. looking at i think um yet yeah, quite a few eucalypts can regenerate after fire mm. and we can talk about that in a minute but for some of them they can't and that's mm. it and if there's the return period for the fire is so short yep. then there's no chance, no chance for seeds to yep. grow and more seeds to be produced is, isn't there also an intensity issue with the fire as well that how hot it gets or how slowly moving it gets will change locally whether or not the seeds survive versus just get the heat exposure yeah i, I think so and as we move into an environment where 
We know that fires are hotter and they're larger and so the return period is shorter and the fire season is longer as well. That's what interests me. If your fire is coming in the in winter uh, and the plant is not really expecting that, then that, that's an issue too. But I wanted to talk more about what happens in this space. So you can imagine... We've, we all saw the pictures a couple of years ago. You think about the fire that sticks most closely in your memory. I'm sure everybody has one. You've got the desolate wasteland of all black and you think nothing, nothing's going to happen here again. But, of course, there are things happening. There are lots of things happening and we've seen many pictures of that too quite quickly afterwards, you know, even a month, less than a month after the black summer bushfires, there were ferns sprouting up and uh, the eucalyptus trees in that part of Victoria are what's known as re-sprouters. So they have got this incredible ability to retain um, moisture and energy and food within their trunk and in these little uh, bud banks that helps keep them alive. Uh, the tree has got these little bud banks inside of these eucalyptus trees and normally when there's a, a healthy crown at the top of the tree, there are hormones that suppress the growth of these little sprouts but when the when the crown has been burnt or there's a drought or there's an insect attack a hormone the hormones will change in the tree and it will release these little these little sprouts that will help allow more food and more energy to be given to the plant and so that's what we can see quite quickly after a lot of bushfires for about 90 percent of eucalypts they're re-sprouters and that's what you can see a month, two months afterwards. These kind of these little weird sort of um, shoots, and you get these furry trees where the whole trunk is kind of furry. I don't know whether you saw images of that. You can see these ferns shooting up. You can see the uh, grass trees shooting up, and these crazy fluffy eucalypts. You can see, see see them now if you drive down towards sort of Lakes Entrance, Malakuta Way. That's yeah. kind of what you huh. can see. And then what you do have in this naked forest space is a lot of space. Right. And yeah. a lot of sunlight. And there are other species that love that and really need that. And one big winner, and again, you can see this if you go down that way now, is the, is the acacia, the wattle. So wattle trees shoot a heap of seeds out and they lie dormant on the floor and then they wait for a fire which cracks them open and then they go, 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 hell for leather. Literally thousands of these little saplings will shoot up and they just, they just wage war with each other for the sun and the energy. Um, and that will happen over kind of two to five years where you'll just get this explosion of, of growth. And, again, that's, that's what we're seeing now two years after the fire in lots of places in Crow Jingalong. But, but I like ferns. I know. I like ferns <laughs> and too. And they don't like sun. They don't. No, they yeah. don't. And I, um, what I can understand, well, there's a couple of things there, right, isn't there, Shane? Because... Firstly, the fires that we had a couple of years ago, a lot of those burnt ferns, mm. you know, ferns don't like fire. They don't like fire. They don't like fire, <laughs> they don't like fire yeah. and they're not used to fire. Yeah. Um, they do regrow from it, but there are lots of rainforested areas mm. that just got drier than they've ever yeah. gotten in, in a really long time. You know, we're talking almost geological time and, and they burnt and their recovery there, I'm not so sure of. But I think the ferns, as I understand it, the ferns kind of come later. So you've got this early period where um, these wattles will grow on these other species that like the sun, that like um, the space. And sometimes that's weeds as well. Yeah. You know, in New South Wales, it's lantana or there's a few other native plants that can be considered weeds. And then you've got these fluffy eucalypts that will kind yep. of shoot around the edges. And after 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, 
the acacias, the wattles would have had their little fight and the strong ones would have survived and a lot of the others will have died away and yeah. rotted. Live fast, die young. The wattle <laughs> motto, let's go. <laughs> and the eucalypts will have, um, you know, those little fluffy trunks will have grown into some branches and the canopy would have returned. Um, interestingly, when I was looking into this, I realised that so 90% of eucalypts have this capacity, but there's about 95 that don't. And of that, the vast majority of them are actually in Western Australia. Mm. Mountain ash is another one. And you can yep. see if you see those up near Healesville, you'll see large dead trees. They're called stags. And they're from 1939. Wow. They're from the huge yeah. Black Friday fires. And they kind of live in the Yarra Ranges National Park and they provide some habitat, but not as much habitat as a tree that would have been able to keep growing and stay alive. But mm. in southwest Western Australia, there's huge fires raging through right now. Yeah. And a yeah. lot of the eucalypts over there... They need to spread their seeds and have those seeds grow into trees that can then make seeds and so you can go grow more trees. And, and that's a little bit concerning to think that the, the regeneration is different that happens over there. It's really fascinating to me when you think of where the biosphere exists in mm. a forest and when there's a fire, you kind of grab it and you just squash it down to below yes. a meter. Yeah. The whole thing, you know, and, and before that, you know, I mean, there's so much in the canopy normally and you just, you just remove all that. You change the vertical range of the ecosphere yeah. in a very, very short space of time, you know, it, in hours um, typically. And, you know, so it, ta- it, it naturally would take a lot of time to sort of rejuvenate in a vertical sense yeah. and for species to return that normally would sit higher up in, in the ecosphere. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it's a part we don't often think about. We just sort of think about the trees, but it's like, well, hang on, actually, there's an entire vertical range of biological iPhones yeah. here. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I didn't think about was that it's not just the biosphere. Well, okay, it depends on your definition of biosphere, but the soil mm, can yep. also be really affected. There was yep. research done, I think it was out of ANU, that says it takes it can take up to 100 years for the soil to return to its mm. previous chemistry yep. um, if there's no fire for that period of time. But if there is another fire, then it takes twice as long, you know, and... Uh, it, I, I think my reading of it was that it's it takes longer than it takes for um, felling, you know, of trees yeah. for the right. chemistry of the soil to be recovered. So I suppose I wanted to share this information because it is going to take time and places that are special to a lot of people. Even if you go, you know, up to the mountains now, up to Hotham, you can see those dead mm. mountain mm. trees. You can see see recovery happening, and maybe you think nothing's happening. And maybe the temperatures are changing so much and the weather patterns are changing so much that what we will see, it won't be what we saw before. But there's plenty going on, you know. The biosphere is looking after itself and this pattern of, you know, that will happen and then there'll be more diversity lower in the canopy and then your ferns will come back, Shane, and then (laughs) more animals will come back, which will help the diversity even more. So if you've come back from your holidays, maybe a little bit dispirited, Give a heart because things are happening there. Things are happening. Thank you, uh, Dr. Linden. Uh, Stacey, good having you on the show again. Uh, take care for the next month until we see you back. Yep. Thanks for having me. Have a great Sunday, Dr. Chang. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ray, Dr. Linden, good to have you guys in the studio again. Uh, it feels a bit weird. I feel a bit invaded. Um, but <laughs> yeah, hopefully, you're both uh, COVID free and not infecting me in this small little. You know, actually quite well ventilated room. We're in, but it's, I'm sure uh, between our small family members, we're 
Checking yeah. our noses regularly. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, yeah. Folks, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Go-Go today. And a big thanks to Susanna Harris, our guest earlier on. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. And we will chat to you again in about, well, one hour less than a week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Go-Go, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Go-Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.